This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 50, Boxing and Tiger Flowers. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. For someone who has repeatedly claimed to hate sports, the sports-themed episodes have abounded. I've done baseball, motorcycling, and today I attempt to tackle boxing. But of course, it's never just a story about boxing. It's a story about class, power struggle, social capital, and race, because it's Atlanta. I have my own little bit of personal history. Uh, In my soccer-obsessed family, boxing was actually the only other sport that my dad and my uncles would watch. And I have very vivid memories of people coming over for the big pay-per-view fight, which that doesn't exist anymore, right? And me sitting on the edge of the carpet watching too. The episode came about because I wanted to tell you about Tiger Flowers, who we'll get to later, I promise. But as it always happens, the more information I uncovered, the more I wanted to share, and that led me to an entire episode about the sport, the events, the venues, and the people who participated. First, let's get into a little early history of the sport itself. The first evidence of boxing dates back to Sumerian relief art from Iraq in the third millennia. Although I do not doubt that humans have been hitting each other with their fists since the dawn of time, here we're talking about two people battling in a sports-like way or with things covering their hands. Boxing is added to the Olympic Games by the Greeks in the 7th century, and they would use soft leather straps to protect their hands. Leave it to the Romans, though to switch the leather straps to something called a cestus, which is defined as a metal-studded glove. As you can imagine, these fights left only one person alive at the end. I won't get into too much detail about weight classes here, but I do mention some in this episode, so in case you're curious, heavyweights are over 200 pounds, welterweights are between 140 and 147, and bantam are between 115 and 118. I will not tell you what weight class I would be in. Boxing comes to the United States from England in the late 1700s, early 1800s, and it's popular in dense urban cities, not only northern. So you have New York, Boston, Chicago, but also New Orleans. What's interesting, though, is that boxing was mostly illegal and fights were held in secret to avoid arrest. By the late 1880s, there's a little bit of a turn. Um, Boxing begins to be tied with the view that it increases your moral and physical character. And so it starts to come out from the shadows and the back alleys, literally and figuratively. At this time, John Sullivan was the country's most famous bare-knuckle boxer, becoming the first American heavyweight champion in 1882. Just two years after winning this title, Sullivan comes to Atlanta for a little press tour of sorts. What was being billed as a, quote, scientific sparring exhibition, end quote, he was basically offering a $1,000 prize to any local fighter that could survive four rounds in the ring with him. There was huge public backlash by middle and upper middle class um, Atlanta, both white and black. Boxing was very much seen as a classless, poor people activity and not something that upstanding citizens would participate in or even watch. The newspaper reports of this event called it a demoralizing spectacle. And there was actually even a group of organized um, citizens, I think there were some church members, to formally object to the sport, um, and they claimed that it threatened law and order. In the late 1880s, the state of Georgia did not have anti-boxing legislation. 
But that doesn't mean that officials approved it, like I said earlier. In 1894, the governor of Georgia uses the volunteer infantry to go all the way down to Waycross, Georgia, to prevent a fight between Jim Corbett and Charlie Mitchell. So it worked. They kind of chased them all the way down through Georgia, and the fight ends up taking place in Jacksonville, Florida. Georgia would not have a boxing commission until the 1990s, which is crazy. So until then, it was really kind of a murky setup on rules and regulations. John Sullivan comes back to Atlanta in 1893, and this time it was for a real advertised boxing match. The audience was huge and comprised mostly of people in the cheap seats, which translates to a lower-class, rowdy crowd. The crowd was so amped up that after the fight, they gather in a vacant lot on Broad Street, and they find two young black boys to fight. Thankfully, the police intervene, and they break up the incident. Most boxing events in Atlanta took place at the Armory Auditorium, which I think was built in 1905. In 1906, the Emory Steiner Building was completed in downtown Atlanta, and inside was the Southern Athletic Club. Just a few years later, in 1909, former bantamweight world champion George Monroe comes to our city. He began officiating as a referee in matches at the Southern Athletic Club, but by the end of the year, he would purchase the club and rename it the Monroe Athletic Club. The idea was to establish weekly fights. George would pick the fighters, act as referee, and the first bout was 10 rounds between Jack Curley from Boston and Jack Foy from Atlanta, both welterweights. There are records of several other big fighting events that happened in Atlanta, but today I want to talk about the infamous Johnson-Jeffries bout, which took place in Reno, but its effects were felt across the state and city. Let me set the stage for you. John Arthur Johnson, who went by Jack, was born in 1878 to parents who had survived being enslaved. He started boxing at age 16, and along with odd jobs, made enough money for his first pair of boxing gloves. In 1908, Jack would become the heavyweight champion of the world, and be nicknamed the Galveston Giant. To gain this title, he was finally challenged by a white opponent, Canadian boxer Tommy Burns. Jack Johnson wins after 14 rounds, clinching the title, but also angering lots of white people around the world who were appalled that a black man is holding the championship title. You got to keep in mind the year here. This is 1908. In Atlanta, it's two years after the race riot, and race riots were occurring in many other states in the U.S. There was a huge push to find another white boxer that would challenge Johnson for the title. Q. James Jeffries. Jeffries was born in 1875 in Ohio, moving later to Los Angeles. He was a hugely successful fighter and won many, many titles. He retired a few years before this fight of the century, but Jeffries was brought out of retirement to fight Johnson and claim the world championship title. On July 4, 1910, in Reno, Nevada, in front of 20,000 people, Johnson would defeat Jeffries. Riots broke out around the United States. A black man beating a Canadian white man was one thing, but an American black man beating an American white man was shocking in this segregated country. Jack Johnson was not well-liked by whites. He never felt they were superior to him. He was flamboyant. He openly dated white women. And he did not, quote-unquote, stay in his place. Instantly after the fight, Cities across the country, both north and south, refused to show the film of the bout. 
Georgia took extra special steps to fight this. On July 6, a bill was introduced in the State House of Representatives that banned any moving picture representing any fight or boxing contest, quote, between Negroes and whites or between a white person and a Negro, end quote. With the memories of the 1906 race riots still very fresh, the Atlanta City Council decided not even to wait for the state to pass any rules, and on July 6, they adopted a ban on the exhibition of fight films. The language of the Censorship Act was drafted essentially to ban one film, the Johnson-Jeffries fight. Now, the fine, if you were caught showing this movie, was $500, which today would be $14,000, or 30 days on the chain gang, and a revocation of your business license. Fast forward to 1919. Boxing is still popular in Atlanta, and a local man, V.W. Miller, is working on opening a boxing club and venue. Known by his nickname, Walk, he had been very active in the bicycle and motorcycle racing days in Atlanta. Shout out episode 46. Even serving a decade as a Southern referee for the Federation of American Motorcyclists. In 1919, he would open Walk Miller's Arena at 37 North Forsyth Street in downtown. It was an open air and acted as both a training center um, for boxers and then a venue for about 400 seats to watch matches. On opening day, the advertised fight was between Freddie Bohr from Atlanta and Marty Falk from Jessup, Georgia. To start the night off, though, the paper says, quote, the show will open with five darkies, end quote, and they would be fighting in a battle royale style event. This was typical of white newspapers' description of any kind of boxing event that involved African Americans. So maybe it's ironic, then, that just one year later, Walk Miller would be the manager and trainer for Tiger Flowers. Theodore Flowers was born in 1895 in Camilla, Georgia. He would move to Brunswick, Georgia as an infant. As an adult along the Georgia coast, he found work as a person who would unload cargo from the ships. During a temporary move to Philadelphia, he took up boxing. It was back in Atlanta, though, in 1920, when he would start to seriously train with Walk Miller. Over the next six years, this left-handed sensation would fight all over the U.S. and rise to the top of the ranks. He was nicknamed the Fighting Deacon, or the Georgia Deacon, because he always prayed before each fight, and he even carried a Bible into the ring. I mentioned in episode 44 that Flowers was a member of the Butler Street CME Church, which still stands today across from Grady Hospital. He bought seats in the soon-to-be-demolished Lyric Theater, and he had them installed in the church so that, he said, the congregation could sit comfortably while listening to the good word. He also donated lots of money to the Atlanta University Center, and he taught boxing to the kids in the neighborhood. Flowers was sort of the antithesis of Jack Johnson. And that's not to say that Johnson was a bad person, but Tiger was able to draw admiration from the white community because he acted in a way that they deemed acceptable for black men in 1920s South. He was pious, church-going, and not what whites would deem quote-unquote uppity. He was able to garner the love and support of both black and white spectators during his matches. Tiger Flowers won all of his 21 first matches before his first loss. Like all other African-American boxers at the time, it was really difficult for him to find a white opponent. So they had to fight 
a ton more men within their race just to get noticed enough to get that big fight with someone out of their race. Over his nine-year career, Flowers would have 132 wins, 17 losses, and 8 draws. He won the World Middleweight Championship title, fighting at Madison Square Garden against Harry Greb in February of 1926. This win would make him the very first black man to hold that distinction. In December of that same year, he loses the title to Mickey Walker in Chicago. Now, this was a really contentious decision. Fans and reporters that watched the fight did not agree with the referees. He ended up losing by points, so this was a referee decision. There were a lot and lot of rumors that the match was fixed by the Chicago mob because they were not about to let a black man beat a white man. Tiger Flowers tried over and over and over again to get a rematch, but it was never granted. Flowers had amassed considerable wealth, and with it, what he didn't give to the church, the school, or the community, he used to build the most luxurious home in Atlanta. Many people don't know that on the site of the fire station number 16 at 1048 Joseph E. Boone Boulevard stood this mansion. Now, the fire station itself is historic because it housed the first African-American fireman in the city of Atlanta. But if you are passing by or walking by, next to the marker about the fireman is another marker about this house. Built in 1926, it was named Tiger's Villa. And it was designed by a black contractor from Auburn Avenue called Aiken and Faulkner Construction. Inside, above the door of the drawing room, there was a plaster bas relief of a tiger's head. And this mansion stood until it was demolished in 1962. Almost one year after that big loss in Chicago, Flowers went to Harlem, New York to undergo surgery for the removal of scar tissue around his eye. During the routine operation, Tiger Flowers lost his life. Just 32 years old, his body was brought back home to be buried. Ironically, his funeral was held at the City Auditorium, also called the Armory Auditorium that I mentioned at the beginning of the show. A place that held early boxing matches would also hold the final send-off to Atlanta's boxing legend. 7,000 mourners of both races crammed every corner of the auditorium, and another 3,500 people lined up outside just to have a chance to walk past the bronze casket. On the trip from the funeral home over to Lincoln Cemetery, it is said that thousands more lined up to watch the procession, which was a mile long. At his funeral was Walk Miller, Tiger's manager. Walk himself would only live one more year, taking his life in Kingston, New York in 1928. A little last piece of boxing trivia for you. In 1970, Muhammad Ali returns from his forced three-year boxing sabbatical because he refused to fight in the Vietnam War. The thing is, no state in the country would allow him a license for the fight. As I mentioned earlier, Georgia did not have a state boxing commission until the 90s, so the fight was held here in the city auditorium. The site of the early matches and the funeral of Tiger Flowers held Muhammad Ali's first comeback fight. Ali would win by technical knockout in the third round. So there you have it, the history of early boxing, where we had it, who put it on, 
and Atlanta's great tiger flowers. If you want to visit some of these places, it's hard. Um, the City Auditorium uh, is a building that is now part of Georgia State, but doesn't look anything like it used to look, so it's not as impactful. Um, but Tiger Flowers is buried at Lincoln Cemetery. Um, his grave is right behind the main administration building, so it's very easy to find. Thank you all for listening. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and most importantly, share this with your friends. If you're enjoying the podcast and you would like two bonus mini episodes every month, head over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Archive Atlanta. And there you can see how to access this bonus content. And I have um, the third mini episode is coming out on Sunday. I hope everyone has a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>